Amen. Thank you. Well, it's been a, a beautiful weekend, weather-wise, beautiful day out there. It's almost hard to believe that a couple of weeks ago we had an ice storm. And uh, what an experience that was, wasn't it? Uh, I'm going to ask first through sixth graders to co come uh, for children's worship with Pastor Susan and her helpers uh, and enjoy that time of worship. Um, during the winter storm, many of you took uh, the uh, opportunity to be a blessing to others. I was really uh, pleased to see an article in our local uh, news about a family uh, that knew that her neighbors didn't have power. And so she put a table, she and her daughter put a table out in front of uh, their house where there was coffee and a charging station for people to charge their phones. And, um, and this was an opportunity uh, to, to be a blessing. Uh, and, and they're members of our church. Uh, and it was really cool because she talked about being blessed. The headline uh, said, you know, about being blessed and being a blessing. And, and, and then we know that during the storm that our farmers took a big hit and, uh, and, and there were some crop losses and so forth. And one of the precious families from our church is the Schuster family who are farmers. And, and, and I'm sure they were affected by, by the ice. But the really kind of nice thing about it is on Saturday, they posted on Facebook that they were teaching their grandchildren to prepare care boxes of produce for those who were needy. So even in the midst of their own loss, that were thinking about others and serving others, they seized the opportunity to be a blessing. And I know the stories are many, that many of you did similar things. So if I didn't mention you, don't get hurt, don't get offended. We see you and uh, we see your post and the, the ones that you don't post, God sees them. But here's the thing that when things like that happen, there are opportunities to serve others. And it's a reminder that life is about opportunities, that it's about us seizing opportunities or some of us missing those opportunities. And it makes a huge difference in how we live. In our story today, we're going to see someone who seized an opportunity, and then we're gonna see a couple of people who missed that opportunity. So we've entitled the message today, Last Chance, and we're picking up the story where we left off last Sunday. We're looking at uh, Paul as he has been imprisoned, and he continues to appear in various courts uh, in the Roman Empire system. And so we pick up uh, after the moment where Paul uh, appeals to Caesar in Festus's court, and then we go to verse 13 of chapter 25 in the book of Acts. And that's where we pick up our story today. And it reads like this. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner when I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. 
When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. It's incredible how many people of power Paul had the opportunity to tell his story to. Uh, we know that uh, in, in this journey that Paul had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in many circles, but, but it's really interesting that he comes to this point where he's before the Sanhedrin, which is like a, the Jewish Supreme Court. Then he has the opportunity to appear before Festus, who is the, the governor, uh, the Roman governor in Caesarea. Uh, he had done so with Felix, who was the governor before him. And, and he had appealed to Caesar, so uh, at one point he would have the opportunity to appear in the highest court of the Roman Empire to tell his story. But in this particular instance, he also gets to tell his story to King Agrippa. While Festus was the Roman governor, who was probably a pagan and, and, uh, and, and a polytheist, uh, Agrippa was of Jewish background and, and was familiar with Judaism and at least a nominal practicing uh, Jew of sorts. And, and here uh, there's the opportunity to present his case. And, and as Paul stands here before these two prominent people, he has the opportunity to be seized an opportunity to, to take advantage of. At some point, we have to decide whether what happens to you, what happens around you is either accidental or providential. At some point, you have to decide if, if the things that are happening in your life are accidents or acts of providence. If there's a hand that is orchestrating things in your life, because whatever you decide about that will make a difference about how you respond in those situations. What we see in this occasion for Paul is that there was a chance for supernatural hope. The people who accused Paul had an opportunity for supernatural hope. The angry mob who wanted to kill Paul were the Jewish religious people. They believed in the same God as Paul. They had the same Bible as Paul. They believed the Torah, the law of Moses, and yet they were angry at his message. And Festus couldn't, couldn't understand. He didn't get it. Why are these people, they're the same religion. They're all practicing uh, the Jewish religion. And why are these people so angry at Paul? Why do they hate him so? Why is it that Paul would rather appear before the Roman emperor than to be handed back to his own people? What is this all about? He, he didn't understand it. And so uh, 
Agrippa, King Agrippa is visiting and he knows that he has a Jewish background and he says, I need you to help me because he's appealed to Caesar and I'm going to send him to Caesar, but I don't have a cover letter. I, I don't have any paperwork to send to him. And I'm going to look kind of silly sending somebody to his court if I don't even know what they're accusing him of. So, so he tells Agrippa, you need to help me figure this out. And, and so Agrippa says, well, I want to hear him out. And Paul is aware of Agrippa's knowledge of Judaism. And he presents to him a message of hope. Look at Acts 26. It's a very long passage. So I'm just going to read selections. You can read the entire passage on your own. But we're going to fast forward to chapter 26, verses 6 through 8. When, when Paul is already presenting his case before King Agrippa. And he says, now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You see, Paul was proclaiming the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. Paul says, all I'm doing is I'm saying that the promises of God have been fulfilled in Christ. I am really holding on to the hope that our ancestors held on to, what they believed in. I'm just simply announcing that that hope is real, that God has kept his word, that Jesus is the Messiah that we're waiting for. See, there was not a problem with Paul's message. There was a problem with the Jews' mindset. The Jews had exchanged their supernatural hope, the supernatural God, for religious traditions and rules. The God who had delivered them from slavery, the God who had opened up the Red Sea so they could walk on dry land, the God who made the walls of Jericho come down, the God who did miracle after miracle in delivering his people, that God, they had exchanged that God for a set of rules and rituals and religious traditions. That's a more manageable God, isn't it? It's a God you can fit into your schedule. It's a God that you can arrange in your comfortable lifestyle. But Paul was blowing up their world. He was messing with their religious traditions. He was shaking their assumptions. He was introducing a supernatural God, a God who intervenes in time and space, a God who is transcendent but yet takes on human form in the form of a baby and enters the human experience and lives a life without sin and goes to the cross to die a torturous, awful, horrible, painful death and is buried. And on the third day, God raises him from the dead. That's the message that Paul is talking about. It's a message to discover supernatural hope, the kind of hope that breaks with all human limitations, the kind of hope that opens up the universe of possibilities, that goes beyond the mundane and the trivial. That was their opportunity. 
And I wonder how many times religious people settle for a lesser hope. How often do people of faith make God about rituals and rules and traditions? How often do we get caught up in the trivial and the preferences and the small things? What is our hope? What, what is your hope? To go to church on Sundays? To have nice worship services? To have good Bible studies? What is our hope in the middle of the pandemic? That one day we don't have to wear a mask? Or we'll have a mask burning ceremony? <laughs> that one day we'll remove the ropes from the pews? That one day this room will be filled again like it used to be? That one day we'll be able to have fellowships and have fajita cookouts like we like to have them and see our family and friends? What is our hope, that we go back to normal? That's what we talk about. Oh, if we could just get back to normal. I can't wait till we get back to normal. And I think about that and I said, that's good. I, I'm looking forward to that. Whatever normal is going to look like, I'm looking forward to that. But I ask you, is that our ultimate hope? To get back to normal? Because I have a feeling that's not why Jesus came. I have a sense that Jesus didn't leave his throne in heaven and come to be born in a manger to die on a cross and, and be raised from the dead so that we can get back to normal. I have the sense that the reason Jesus came is to save us from the normal and raise us to the extraordinary, to allow us to live in the supernatural. That's the hope that Christ came to bring. I was reminded this week about a story I'd heard some time ago about a man who was given the news that he had a terminal disease and that he only had a few weeks to live. And he called the pastor. He said, Pastor, the doctor tells me I only have a few weeks left and I want you to know what I would like at my funeral. This is the clothes I want to wear and these are the hymns that I would like to be sung at my funeral. And he began to tell him the things that he wanted and the pastor was taking notes uh, with a little bit of sadness in his heart. And then he said, okay, well, we'll take care of that. And then he said, one more thing. He said, I would like you to make arrangements so that where I'm in the casket lying there, that there would be a fork in my hand. And the pastor said, what? Yeah, I want a fork in my hand. He said, well, I don't understand. He said, well, pastor, I've been in church for a long time and, and we have church fellowships and we have great meals and as we sit around the table and we visit with other brothers and have a good meal and they're cleaning up our, our, our table, invariably someone will say, keep your fork. <laughs> and when they say keep your fork, I know that the best is yet to come. It may be double chocolate cake. It may be some drizzled caramel on a cheesecake. It may be some key lime pie. It may be some Texas peach cobbler with blue uh, bell vanilla ice cream. But I know when they say keep the fork, it's because something good is coming. The best is yet to come. And so when people come by, 
my casket and they see me and they see the fork in my hand and they ask you, Pastor, why does he have a fork in his hand? I want you to tell them the best is yet to come. My hope is beyond what we can see and feel in this life. It's a chance for supernatural hope. It's also a chance for satisfying love. Paul had an encounter with love on the road to Damascus. The love of God overtook him. And that God, whose love is perfect, appointed Paul to be an ambassador of love to the nations. One day, Paul was filled with hate and anger towards Christ's follower. And after that encounter on the road to Damascus, his heart was filled with love and compassion for them. The kind of love that, that led him to sacrifice his comfort. He was willing to be stoned and beaten and even be killed for the sake of others knowing the love of God. Paul is sharing that experience with Agrippa, that experience of the road to Damascus. And, and in verses 17 and 18 of, of chapter 26, we, we see the continuation of, of, of that story that Paul is telling, where God speaks to him and he says, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God rescued Paul so that through Paul, he could rescue the nations. That's how incredible his love is. Do you know that? Do you know about God's love? Do you know God loves you? God loves you with an everlasting, never-ending, never-quitting, incredible kind of love. His love is so great that notice the four things that God wanted to do through Paul's message. He wanted people to be turned from darkness to light. He wanted to rescue them from the power of Satan. He wanted to forgive their sins forever and give them a place among the saints. These people who were far from God, God loved them so much that that's what he wanted to do in their lives. That's the kind of love that God offers. It is a love that rescues, a love that forgives, a love that elevates a sinner and makes him a saint. A love that takes an alien, a stranger, an outsider, and makes them a child of God. A love that satisfies the deepest longing of the human soul. St. Augustine taught that, uh, that, that all human beings are driven by a desire, a driving love. And that whatever it is that we choose to love determines what city we belong to, whether the earthly one or the heavenly one. And he said, in the fourth century, he said, for thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Whether we realize it or not, we all have a hunger for the infinite. We all have a longing for the eternal, for perfect joy, for a love that no one else on earth could ever give us our hunger to be loved and to love is insatiable outside of Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted people 
to have the opportunity to know that love. Because that's the love that rescued him. That's the love that compelled him. That's the love that he wanted them to experience. I heard a story recently about someone's father uh, who he and his family knew the gospel and they went to church, but, but he became an alcoholic. And his family was really resentful of that for obvious reasons. And, and the more that he fell into his alcoholism, the more condemnation he felt and the more judgment that he felt. His, his family loved him and they wanted him to be redeemed and delivered from that. But, but all he felt from his own church and from his own family was judgment and condemnation. And a day came when, when he was diagnosed with cancer and a pastor from another church came to visit him and pray with him. And he, and he somehow was led to share with this man about the love of God and to remind him that God loved him just the way he was and that God wanted to forgive his sins and that God wanted, wanted to rescue him from his addiction, that God wanted to a relationship with him and to have fellowship with him. It may not have been the first time that this man heard that God loved him, but it was the first time that he reached the deepest part of his soul and he opened his heart to the love of God and he was rescued by love. He got to live longer than what they expected and those years were lived as a new man who had been saved by a satisfying love. A chance for satisfying love and then a chance for saving faith. As Paul stood before Festus, the Roman governor, and as he stood before King Agrippa, do you notice that Paul is not so concerned with defending himself as he is with defending the faith? Because he knows this is saving faith. That, that, that trusting God through Christ brings about redemption. Paul is standing before these two powerful figures, Festus and Agrippa. They're looking at him. They're listening to him. He's going on and on about this story that sounds so interesting and so compelling. Everyone else in the court is watching the dynamic to see what happens, to see how Agrippa responds, to see how Festus responds. And Paul is building up. He's taking advantage of this opportunity. He is not trying to get free from Festus or Agrippa. He's trying to proclaim the gospel of salvation. And he gets to the core of the Christian message. He gets to the point where he says, this Messiah was supposed to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And right about then, Festus had had enough. He gets agitated. He gets irritated at Paul's message. Look at verse 24 of chapter 26. At this point, Festus interrupt, interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Festus has just had enough. This is just making him angry. What, what, what are you talking about, Paul? You're crazy. 
You look like an educated guy, but maybe you read one too many books. And you've gone off the deep end. Now, I wonder how Paul must have felt to be interrupted like that. Here he has had the boldness to, to speak before these powerful people. And, and then he is interrupted with a shout. Did you notice that? Festus interrupts him shouting. Almost saying like, shut up, Paul. You're crazy, man. Now, I don't know what I would have done. I've, I don't think in my 30 years plus of ministry I've ever been interrupted during a sermon by someone that says you're crazy. Now, people have told me I'm crazy at other times, but not during the preaching. So, so Paul is here. He gets interrupted. And notice that he keeps his cool. He tells Festus in a very appropriate way, in a very respectful way, I'm not crazy. And it's not like Sheldon, like my mother had me tested, right? I'm not crazy. And then he directs himself to Agrippa because he knows Agrippa understands something. He says, Festus, man, he has no context for what I'm talking about. But Agrippa knows. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the prophets. And, and he turns to him. And look at verse 27, what he says to him. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Agrippa is not about to let Paul lead him to Christ. He's too sophisticated. How does Paul dare to insinuate that with a speech, he can turn an important king to be a Christ follower. Once again, Paul is blocked. First, Festus calls him crazy. Now Agrippa belittles his attempt to lead him to faith. That could be pretty intimidating. I don't know how many of us could stand before two prominent people and after being blocked like that, we said, you know what, never mind. I'm gonna go back to my cell. Call me when my ship is ready for Rome. But Paul is relentless. He, he stands there and he tells Agrippa, he says, look, I don't care if it takes you five minutes or five years. I just wish and I pray that one day you will know what I know. Because if you only knew the hope I have, if you only knew the love that transformed me, if you only knew the presence and the power of God that I know, you would want it too. You would believe too. So it may not happen today, but I hope it happens sometime. For Paul, to win that day was not that he would be set free, but that Festus and Agrippa would come to faith because if they would only believe, if they would only put their trust in God's promises and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, they could know salvation in all of its implications. The sad part is that that's not how the story ends. The king and the governor and Bernice, who happened to be Agrippa's sister and wife at the same time, pretty awkward. 
And all those who accompanied him stood up and they walked away, left Paul standing there. And as they were walking, there was a sense of pity. Poor Paul. He hasn't done anything wrong and and yet he's here in prison and he's going to have to wait to appear before the emperor. But there's an irony here. Because Paul is not the one to be pitied. See, what, what happens here is that they think that Paul has missed his chance for freedom. But what has really happened is that they have missed their chance for salvation. The bigger truth is that they have missed their opportunity to experience the greatest freedom that anyone could ever know. Sometimes things aren't what they seem. Sometimes we're not as big as we think we are. Festus and Agrippa thought they were the ones on top and poor little Paul. But eternity would tell otherwise. It doesn't matter how big you are and how knowledgeable you are, how powerful you think you are. We will never stand taller than when we're on our knees before the cross of Calvary. We don't know if Festus or Agrippa ever came to faith. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know if they ever had another opportunity to hear the gospel or to believe. What we do know is that on that day, they had a chance for saving faith. We do know that on that day, Paul had an opportunity to share the good news. Paul seized the opportunity. Festus and Agrippa missed the opportunity. God in his sovereignty orchestrates opportunities for his redemptive purposes that can either be seized or missed by us. He offers us a chance for supernatural hope, for a satisfying love, for a saving faith. And we have that opportunity. God sets up divine appointments for us. Whether you're here in person or you're watching online, I want to let you know that today you're not here by chance. This is a divine appointment a divine moment to respond to an opportunity that God has created. It may be one of many, or it may be your last one. I don't know, you don't know, but we know it's an opportunity. C.S. Lewis said, all your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day's coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. Wow. How true. What will it be for you today? Would you stand with me? As we pray, would you consider seizing the opportunity to make Jesus your Lord and Savior right now? If you've never done that, today 
is your opportunity. Will you seize that? Will you take advantage of the opportunity to share the good news this week? To look for those divine appointments that God has set in before you and just like Paul, seize them. Will you seize the opportunity to love and serve others in his name this week? We may not have a winter storm. I know this past week we had church members who drove by the McCallum bus station and saw the droves of asylum seekers from Central America and took pictures and called our missions office and our chat, our missions pastor and Elizabeth began to get on the phone and make phone calls, called the Catholic charities and talk to Sister Norma and say, what do you need? And they say, we need masks and we need sanitizer and we need ham and cheese to make sandwiches for people. And immediately our team sent 6,000 masks, 100 bottles of sanitizer and ham and cheese. It was an opportunity and we're going to have more of those financially and as volunteers to love and to serve in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you today for the scriptures, for Paul's life and how he sees the opportunity that you gave him to be a witness for you of your love and your grace, Father. So today, as we, as we think about our response, today, Father, as we think about how you would want us to seize the opportunity, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, lead us. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, convict us. I pray that we be people that know how to live in the moment because we have a hope that is beyond this life. Help us to respond as your spirit leads. In Jesus' name. As we sing, you, you seize the opportunity to respond to God right now and prepare your heart for communion.